Welcome to the Dancing Squirrel Tacos podcast. I'm your host, Heather Bremer, and I'm excited to be with you for episode three. We've got a great guest joining us this week. Ashley Petrie is the author of Secret Indianapolis, and we're finally going to find out from her what caused the great squirrel invasion of 1822. Before we get to my interview with Ashley, however, let's dive into a pretty important moment in my favorite fandom this week. The final trailer for the final installment of the Skywalker saga, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, debuted on Monday Night Football. On the Star Wars YouTube channel alone, it's had more than 18 million views, and I'm pretty sure I account for at least a million of those. A full confession, I've been a Star Wars fan since I was a toddler. The first film I saw in the theater was Return of the Jedi. My sister and I wore out a VHS copy of the Ewoks movies that we recorded from TV, and at some point I declared Luke Skywalker my forever boyfriend. My husband is okay with that, by the way, and it's been Twitter approved by Mark Hamill himself. So anyway, I grew up with the originals, and I was so excited for the prequels to give us the background on how the universe fell into the hands of the Empire. Now, while I was initially disappointed by the atrocious dialogue, the prequels have definitely grown on me over the years, especially when I tried to watch them through the eyes of our foster kids who were seeing them for the first time. I found I can get through things like Are You an Angel because of the Duel of Fates and the battles on Geonosis and Mustafar. Now fast forward to the present, and you can definitely count me among the Star Wars fans who love this final group of films. The Forest of Awakens was such a blast. It reminded me of how fun this series can be when politics and Luke and Leia's mom dying were taken out of the equation. And then there's The Last Jedi. I know some fans found it disappointing and even blasphemy, but I love how it challenged our perceptions of how the Star Wars universe works and how its stories are told. We lost our princess Carrie Fisher before the film's release, so I will always treasure that final scene between Luke and Leia. And don't even get me started on the appearance of the twin suns in the sky at the end. It makes me very emotional even now. So I'm definitely among those who are eagerly anticipating episode 9, and I already have tickets purchased for a 10 p.m. show on December 19th, and then one the next morning at 6.45 a.m. at the Indiana State Museum IMAX Theater. That early show has become a tradition with me and my friends, and I've taken the entire day off work with plans to catch a few more showings throughout the day. Seeing the new trailer, I don't want to come up with a lot of headcanon about what it means, because I think a lot of people made that mistake ahead of Last Jedi and were disappointed when their vision wasn't reality. But there are a few things I want to highlight from the trailer. First, can we all just pay homage to the incredible force of nature that is John Williams? I feel like the man has written the score of my life. In the trailer, his Star Wars theme is taken to new and sweeping heights. Now, Williams wasn't responsible for this particular arrangement, but without him, it wouldn't exist. Second, I'm totally geeking out over one particular thing in the scene of the Resistance ships amassing for battle. And that's the present of what appears to be the ghost. The ship of my beloved Ezra Bridger, Kanan Jarrus, Harrison Dula, Sabine Wren, Chopper, and Zebarilios of the Rebels animated series. Is Hera still out there fighting the good fight? Or, or spoiler warning for those who haven't finished the series, could it be piloted by Jason Sandula, the son of Hera and Kanan? Even if the ghost isn't exactly acknowledged in the film, it's a great nod to the series by Dave Filoni. The next thing I want to touch on is something we don't see in the trailer, and that's Carrie Russell's face. In fact, we haven't seen her character, Zori Bliss, without her helmet in any of the promotional material 
though she's said to be an old friend of Poe's. So is her character's appearance key to a bigger plot point? Could she perhaps be somehow disfigured in a way that will make her instantly recognizable to someone? Will she at some point remove her helmet, revealing purple hair, a la Sabine Wren? We'll see how the story unfolds, but I think there's more to her character than just being a rogue. And finally, there's the, oh my gosh, that totally broke my heart moments. Starting with C-3PO's line, I'm taking one last look at my friends. If that doesn't give you all the feels in the world, you are a monster. There's also the final word of the trailer, always, spoken by Carrie Fisher. With the trailer being released on what would have been her 63rd birthday, it was especially heartbreaking. I mean, real, actual tears streaming down my face. There's so much more we could go into, like why is there a scene of Rey and Kylo destroying something together? How does Palpatine actually figure into this whole thing, and is he talking to the Resistance or to Rey and Kylo when he says, your coming together will be your undoing? Like I said, I don't want to create headcanon that won't come true and will affect my view of the film when it comes out on December 20th, when the saga will end, but the story will live forever. So when we come back, we'll be joined by Ashley Petrie, author of Secret Indianapolis. This is Heather Bremer for the Dancing Squirrel Tacos podcast. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Dancing Squirrel Tacos. I'd like to introduce you to our guest today. Ashley Petrie is an accomplished writer and copy editor from Indianapolis who has extensive experience in covering the Circle City's food, drink, and art scene. She's recently released a fascinating book called Secret Indianapolis, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure, and it reveals the city's best-kept restaurant secrets, strangest parks and museums, creepiest urban legends, and weirdest works of art. Ashley, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, Ashley, you've done a lot of newspaper and magazine writing with your work appearing in USA Today and Midwest Living and Mm -hmm. Indianapolis Monthly, among others. And you have another book that's called 100 Things to Do in Indianapolis Before You Die. How did Mm -hmm. you decide to start on this particular project? (laughs) Well, so my publisher has these series in other cities, and they decided they wanted Indianapolis versions. Uh, so they reached out to me because I have this experience as a freelancer going back, you know, 15 years. Um, and so I did 100 things first. Uh, the first edition came out in 2015, and then the second edition came out in 2018 because so much had changed in the city just in that very short amount of time. Uh, and then Secret Indianapolis was an opportunity for me to tell a lot of the weirder stories that didn't uh, quite fit in the 100 things context. So how did you go about finding all of these things? Did you visit each of the places, or is Google your very best friend now? (laughs) Uh, I did visit many of them, uh, but more than anything, it was getting into the stacks at the library and pulling out old historical texts that nobody had checked out for the past 20 years, (laughs) and um, just a lot of reading. I had a whole bunch of stacks around my office. So, uh, and then some of it too was things I had become aware of through my previous work. Well, I think the first thing I have to ask about, given the name of our podcast, is the Great Squirrel Invasion of 1822. <laughs> now, what in the name of all that's good and furry is that all about? <laughs> I knew that was going to come up given the name of the podcast. Um, yes, the Great Squirrel Invasion of 1822 was, it sounds very funny in retrospect, but uh, at the time, it was really devastating for local farmers. 
So Indianapolis is uh, first settled around 1820. Uh, it officially becomes the capital in 1821. So this is 1822. The city is newborn, and many of the farmers are getting ready to harvest their very first crop from their new fields. And that year, the trees just didn't produce enough nuts for whatever reason to keep the squirrels fed. And the squirrels were literally starving to death. So they went on a rampage, sort of like a plague of locusts, uh, across the Midwest and just took down anything edible they could find, and that included a lot of farmers' cornfields. Um, some early settlers reported that they would spend all day out in the field shooting squirrels, and nothing, you know, it didn't make a dent in their numbers. There were thousands upon thousands of them. Um, and they would, so they would spend all day out in the field, they'd spend all night um, making new bullets, and they'd go back out and do it the next day. Uh, and a few managed to save their crops that way, but not very many did. That sounds far more terrifying than adorable. I know, I know, right? Yeah. So, so many squirrels, though. Oh. So, if I was thirsty for a chocolate cola, I hear you know where we I could get one. Yes. So, uh, as background, uh, chocolate was produced here in Indianapolis for decades, uh, but then it was purchased and transferred around, and eventually the trademark on it expired. And um, Dan Iaria, who owns the Rockola 1950s Cafe uh, near Irvington, decided that he was going to revive Chocola. So he purchased the trademark and recreated the recipe, uh, and he's working on larger-scale production. But for now, the uh, Rockola 1950s Cafe is the only place in the world where you can still get a Chocola. I'll have to stop by there sometime. <laughs> exactly. Now, you covered uh, the restaurant scene for a long time, and I think it's mm -hmm. amazing how Indy has evolved in that manner. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I left Indiana some 10 years ago and moved to Florida, and uh, when I came back to Indiana, the city had just transformed itself. And I, I think that scene in particular is one of the places where it is it is far and above where it ever was before. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the best under-the-radar restaurants that you found? Um, well, a lot of them that are included in the book are sort of uh, those ethnic restaurants that are tucked away in a strip mall that you would just drive by without even really noticing them, but actually the food is incredible. Uh, and one of those is Patties of Jamaica. Uh, it's tucked away in the strip mall that's not near any other restaurants. It's sort of uh, – it's very anonymous, but it, they have um, – Jamaican meat patties, which are sort of like hand pies filled with meat or uh, vegetables or whatever, and they are delicious, and they are crazy cheap. They're like $1.50 a piece. So uh, you can buy a whole bunch fresh, or you can buy a bag of them frozen to take home and cook later, and uh, I really highly recommend them. I think my husband and I live by the rule that if you find a restaurant in a strip mall, that's an ethnic restaurant. It is probably the best you're ever going to find. We've done that with a Cuban <laughs> restaurant in Florida and mm -hmm. a Thai restaurant right? that used to be right beside our apartment. Mm -hmm. um, and they always have amazing prices, too. Exactly. So now the book also touches on the arts. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that piqued my interest was the disappearing painting. What can you tell me about that? So one of the things I tried to do in this book, although it's called Secret Indianapolis, is still to include some of the bigger names like the Indianapolis Museum of Art, but focus on what in their collection is really strange. And for the IMA, that was Acton, which is a disappearing, the quote-unquote disappearing painting. Uh, what happens is you walk into a room that's very dimly lit, 
And in front of you is a painting that's just a gray canvas. And as you walk closer, you realize it's actually not a canvas at all. It's a hole in the wall. Um, but then as you step back again, it looks like a canvas again. It's an incredible uh, visual illusion. And sometimes people don't believe it. They actually have to stick their hand through the hole to make sure that it's really a hole. Uh, and I just think that that's a really neat piece. You also have something about a dream machine. Uh, yes. Uh, that is one of the sculptures that is in the arts park, which is behind Indianapolis uh, Art Center. I think a lot of us think about the Art Center in terms of uh, the classes it offers and that sort of thing. But there's a whole, um, basically, just park full of art <laughs> uh, right in the backyard uh, that a lot of people aren't aware of. So the dream machine is one of those. It looks like a chair, and it has all these little tendrils going up through the air. Um, then there are all sorts of other pieces, some permanent and some that rotate. In your book, you detail some of the interesting museums in Indianapolis, including the Doctor Who mu Museum, which I have actually been to because I'm a big Doctor <laughs> Who fan. Uh, but what was the strangest museum you found or most interesting? Um, there were a couple that uh, even after all the time I've spent writing about Indianapolis, I'd never even heard of. Um, and one of them was the Corson Fire Museum. Uh, it is within the offices of a company called Corson Fire and Security, and they do a lot of training with firefighters. And this museum, just tucked away in this industrial park and part of, as part of their office, has more than a 1,000 antique fire extinguishers. Uh, it has antique uh, fire trucks, all sorts of firefighting equipment. It's a huge collection, uh, and it's all gleaming and shiny and obviously very well-loved. Um, and it really surprised me, just the size of the collection and the quality. And, you know, there it is just in the middle of an industrial park. Speaking of strange things, uh, we're approaching Halloween, my favorite season of the year. Um, do you know any good haunted houses to go to in Indianapolis? <laughs> oh, there are several. Um, there are ghosts everywhere, actually. <laughs> I could tell you a whole bunch of stories. Uh, one of them is the Hannah House, which is down on the south side. Um, it was reportedly a stop on the Underground Railroad. And what allegedly happened was that some um, enslaved people who were on the Underground Railroad were in the basement of that house, um, sort of locked into a secret room. And one of them knocked over a lamp and the room caught on fire. Uh, and many of those people died before anyone could get to them to let them out. Um, and so that house is allegedly incredibly haunted. Uh, people hear the sounds of glass breaking, things like that. Uh, another haunted uh, house thing I recommend is the uh, ghost tour that goes along with the Irvington Halloween Festival. Uh, on that tour, you're going to hear about someone called uh, Madge Oberholzer. And uh, she was um, just a state worker who lived there in Irvington uh, in the 20s. But a couple blocks away from her lived D.C. Stevenson, who was um, at that time the Grand Dragon of the state KKK. And he took a liking to Madge Oberholzer, uh, but she rejected his advances. And so as an alternative, he kidnapped her and assaulted her and everything you can imagine. Um, she, he did eventually take her back home, and she did pass away about a month later, from an infection in one of the wounds she had inflicted. But before that, she gave a deathbed um, statement about what had happened that was so strong and so clear and so detailed 
that it actually put D.C. Stevenson in prison for murder. And he hadn't expected that because he thought all of his political cronies would uh, rescue him from anything like that. But the case had gotten too much publicity. They couldn't. And so he said, fine, I'm taking them all down with me. So he started releasing all this dirt he had on all these Indiana politicians. And effectively what Madge set in motion was um, basically dismantling the KKK's hold on Indiana politics because she was brave enough to make a statement about a kind of assault that people didn't talk about much at the time. That takes a lot of courage. It does. And her house and D.C. Stevenson's house are both on that Irvington Ghost Tour. I have always wanted to go on that tour. My sister lives in that area, and we go mm-hmm. to the Halloween festival a lot, but we've never made it to the, the tour yet. Oh, it's so fantastic. I actually had a bit of an encounter with Madge when my husband and I did it a couple years ago. Really? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when we walked up to the house where Madge uh, lived and died, I started to feel really ill, and it just came out of nowhere, and I was trying to think why I might feel ill, and so I was going through all these things in my head, and then I hear the guide say, uh, a lot of people, when they come to this house, report feeling ill, because that's Madge trying to share part of her experience, and I thought, what? (laughs) And then when we walked away from the house, I felt totally fine again, so that's my strange Madge encounter. Wow. I know. Now maybe I don't want to go on the tour. <laughs> yeah, well, it's worth remembering her story for sure. I know you uncovered a lot of creepy urban legends. What mm-hmm. was the strangest or most outlandish that you found? Uh, probably the strangest because it's so easily disproved is uh, the House of Blue Lights. It was built by Skiles Test, who was, uh, you know, just had too much money and didn't know what to do with it. So he built this whole complex that included his own power plant and underground tunnels, and a pet cemetery, and all sorts of things. Uh, And the house was covered in white tile and lit with blue lights. So those blue lights, sort of, uh, you could see them for a long way out because the white reflected that color out. So a legend built up around the house of blue lights that he had, that his wife had died, and that Skiles Test hadn't been able to part with her, so he put her in a glass coffin in his living room. Uh, And... For decades, it was sort of the dare for an Indianapolis teenager to go up to the house and look through the windows and see if they could see that coffin of the dead wife. The problem is, Scott's test wife wasn't dead. Uh, in fact, his ex-wife and his actual wife all outlived him. So where this uh, rumor originated, who knows? Uh, but you can still go to the Scott's test nature park now, which is... Um, the property was converted into a park after he died. The buildings are gone, um, but you can still go walk through that area and maybe see a little bit of a blue glimmer somewhere off in the distance. <laughs> maybe it was to keep all the people away from the house and had the opposite effect. <laughs> maybe. He thought it was funny until people really started, you know, trespassing and vandalizing, and then he stopped feeling like it was funny. So of all the entries in your book, which one surprised you the most? Um, well, this is kind of a bizarre story, and it was something I'd never heard about, and it's just funny. Uh, so in the early years of Indianapolis, we were hugely dependent on the National Road, US-40. Uh, we didn't have a navigable waterway. Uh, the trains hadn't come yet, so that road was really key in terms of getting goods in and out and traveling and things like that. During the presidency of Martin Van Buren, 
federal funding for that road was cut off and it was turned over to the state to fund and manage. And a lot of people uh, held that against Martin Van Buren because the road was so terrible. It was so rutted that people would have to um, tie themselves to their buggies to keep from falling out. Uh, and we, so we felt that we really needed that funding and we were mad at Martin Van Buren. So a couple of years later, he decides that he's going to go on the campaign, tra on the campaign trail uh, to drum up support for a second presidential run. And he decides, ironically, that he's going to go on a tour of the National Road. So when he gets to Indianapolis and then to Plainfield, the people of Plainfield decide they're going to show him what a terrible road it is and why he should have allotted more funding for the road. So they bribe his carriage driver to go careening down a giant hill and over a huge set of um, tree roots that were sticking out into the road, and that was a giant elm tree. And what happened was that the carriage tipped over, and Martin Van Buren went tumbling head over heels out oh, into no. a giant mud puddle. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. So they definitely showed him how bad the road could be, and that incident made headlines all across the country, which was unfortunate, unfortunate for Martin Van Buren because that's not exactly the kind of attention he wanted <laughs> no. at that time. Uh, so the original elm tree that the carriage ran over has died, but the people of Plainfield did erect a plaque and at that spot, and um, built, they planted a new elm there as well. So you can still go visit the Van Buren Elm is what it's called. And I just think that that is hilarious and bizarre. Do you have another favorite? Uh, another uh, sort of, I guess, benefit or pleasure of telling these stories was that I was able to tell a lot of stories of uh, heroes that had been forgotten and overlooked. And one of those was a man named William Whitfield. And he was actually the first African-American Indianapolis Police Department officer to be killed in the line of duty. This was in the early 20s. And at the time, his death went completely ignored. Um, you know, no flags flew at half-mast. Um, no politicians gave statements decrying the violence. It just it was completely hushed up. And uh, he was buried in Crown Hill with no gravestone and no ceremony whatsoever. And the reason this happened, theoretically, uh, is that he had been assigned as an African-American officer to patrol a white neighborhood. And this speculation is that he was assassinated as a protest against that action. And that's part of the reason it was hushed up. Uh, so that's a terrible story. Fortunately, it has a somewhat happier ending, uh, which is that in the late 90s, the Indianapolis Police Department historian uh, wrote a piece about William Whitfield for the internal newsletter and a couple of officers looked at that and said, this is an injustice we need to correct. And they decided to raise money for a gravestone. Uh, they thought it would take weeks or months. It took three hours. And when they had the gravestone ready and installed, they had a memorial service for William Whitfield that finally, finally included all the ceremony, the 21-gun salute uh, that he should have had decades earlier. So I think that's an important reminder of how far we've come and how we need to sort of look back at those injustices and correct them where we can. Yeah, that's definitely one of the great stories in the book. Now that Secret Indianapolis has been released, what's up next for you? Well, I am uh, working on a book for next fall, but it's still in the works a bit, so I can't quite talk about it yet. 
But it will be, of course, focused on Indianapolis uh, because I'm passionate about the city and telling uh, the stories that I keep finding about the city. Well, maybe we can help you with naming that next book. It kind of ties into the, a little game I like to play with our guests uh, on each episode. It evolved from the way the podcast was named, so I'm going to ask you three questions. Okay. What's something you're good at that people might not expect or that you have as a favorite hobby? Um, I weirdly have a certificate in flower arranging because I find it calming to just, you know, make something pretty. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite animal? Well, I have four cats, so I guess I have to say cats or else they'll be mad at me. And your favorite food? Mashed potatoes. I find them incredibly comforting. Okay. So my suggestion for the name of your next book should be <laughs> Floral Cat Mashed Potatoes. <laughs> I I think that is a good idea. I, sh- I will definitely I use that. I mean, people would have to know what that's about. <laughs> I might have to explain the title, but yes. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure it would be a bestseller. <laughs> well, Ashley, thank you so much for being with us on Dancing Squirrel Tacos. Again, Ashley's book is Secret Indianapolis, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. If you'd like to chat with Ashley about her book, she'll be at Garfield Park Farmer's Market at 2345 Pagoda Drive in Indianapolis on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. When we come back, we'll reveal details of our special Halloween episode. Thank you again to Ashley Petrie, author of Secret Indianapolis. It's such a fun book. I just love all the weird tidbits of knowledge. Though I'm a little dismayed that the Great Squirrel Invasion was a lot more terrible than adorable. So that's it for episode three of Dancing Squirrel Tacos. Check us out each week on your favorite podcasting platforms and follow at Squirrel in a Tutu on Twitter for updates about upcoming guests or to give us feedback on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Next week will be our Halloween show. I've got some spooky tales to share from my own personal experience, including one guaranteed to send shivers down your spine. We'll also be chatting with some real-life ghost hunters who like to hang out in dark places and talk to whatever might be hiding there. So until next time, remember, we're all stories in the end. Make it a good one.